Hey, Joel. How are you, man? Patrick, good. How you doing? Good. I'm gonna hit you. I'm gonna hit you with a with a question right out of my brain to start, which is, and I think you're gonna have a, an excellent opinion on this. What is the best Beatles album? Man, how did you know that that was in my notes for today? <laughs> was it? Yeah. Oh, not great. not which not which one was the best, but one of them makes an appearance. <laughs> Actually, seven of seven of them do. But um, you know, I heard this I heard this great thing once this great thing one time, which was um, Beatles or Rolling Stones, and I can't remember who said it, but someone said Beatles when you're in love and rolling stones when you need to get things done. I thought that was amazing. Um, gosh, I don't know. Um, you know, I'm gonna have to go with, uh, I'm gonna have to go with a revolver, I guess, for whatever reason, but I could change my mind. I mean, they're all, you know, you can't, it's so, uh, favorite album, I, I don't know, or best album, I have no idea, but, but revolver is the one that comes up, I think, uh, in today's podcast i love it general consensus is revolver or abbey road yeah that makes sense to you yeah no i like that ringo gets good he gets a good song in abbey road too and um yeah and george really comes out um with some banging stuff there um you know my younger son his middle name is Harrison. My older son, his name is Jagger. For the middle names. For the middle names. Yeah. We were young. We decided, eh, why not? I love it. I we're love it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So, so before we started peeling back the peeling back the layers, you had a giant mug. I said that's a nice mug, and you said something along the lines of same chunk of chaga. And then I foolishly asked you how many times you use a chunk of chaga, and you told me, "Why? Why are we doing this now?" So I want to find out that answer. <laughs> That's right. Save it for the podcast. Why well, do it before Save it the for recording? The podcast. Man. Come on. Tell me. Um, tell me how many times you'll reuse a chaga chunk. Because it's your stuff. So, and and what uh, the stuff? Yeah, what you sent me the the outer rind of it, the outer surface is just so thick and dark and rich with, with betulinic acid and whatever other or me melanin, whatever fun melanin stuff it's got. For in sure. It. Lots yeah. of melanin. Yeah. Um, so, so it just, a, a, a chunk that big, I mean, some people I think would be tempted to like myself included to, to break it up into smaller pieces. Yeah. But instead my process is, uh, for the first time, you want to go lower temp. So bring water to a low boil, throw it in there, turn the heat off, and let it simmer. And then uh, drink that later once it's cooled down a bit. Uh, but then after that, take the chunk out for the next day, bring the water to a boil, throw the chunk in there, let it boil for a minute or two, then turn the heat off. And with every day, I'll continue to increase the time that it's boiling and i will use it basically until there's no rule of thumb there except the color of the tea that's made once i feel like that's exhausted then then it's time to toss it out into the, the yard or the garden or what have you 
um, don't throw it in the trash. That's that's just a, a darn shame. I mean, sure. right? Tigers, <laughs> tigers. I mean, yeah. If you don't know what the tiger reference is, go back to the prior episode because it won't be explained here. But um, that being said, the chunk of of your Siberian chaga that I'm using now, it's it's been a week or more, and it just is so rich still. And some people will do the the perpetual low simmer um, as well. And in like a crock pot, that's a great way to go. But right now I'm just experimenting with like, well, how many times can I just bring this to a boil for a few minutes? And it just keeps on giving up more and more good, good stuff. Yeah. So I'm not tired of it yet. <laughs> I love, that's, that, that makes a ton of sense to me. Um, you can really visually see the, like what is being offered from chaga in a tea so that it makes sense to keep using that until you can't visually see it anymore. When, when, uh, so the structure of chaga, and I don't know how much, how much you know about this. I know essentially nothing, but I do know that the outer layer, and actually we, we did a little text exchange about this. So the outer layer develops that, that dark, like crust to it. It's almost like a, like a bark component to it that I assume is part of just like a stress response. And, um, one of the pieces, one of the pieces that I found had these borer holes in it and you noted that inside the borer holes that same crust had had developed and i i thought that exact same thing i thought it was really interesting can you tell me the biggest difference between the like inner body i guess the inner fruit body and that outer crust is do you know no i i would assume it's I mean, the, the only thing, uh, you know, we can really safely assume is that melanin content, right? Because it's yeah. so much darker. So much but darker. other than that, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it is kind of a magical substance, chaga. I mean, it's taking like birch, birch is a, you know, pretty medicinal tree as it is. And right. people will drink birch water. It has all sorts of interesting compounds in, uh, in the living layers of that tree and in the bark. And so chaga is essentially a parasite of that birch tree and so it's right. sucking all of the good stuff out of that birch tree and then through some alchemical process it's making it even better like it's yeah. adding even more stuff to it <laughs> right so that's awesome <laughs> yeah. it real chaga is it is very alien in its physical structure uh it like has a remarkable ability to feel kind of quirky like it has a cork like quality to it but it's also like remarkably hard like the especially the outer layer of chaga is generally just like very very tactily hard and abrasive um it really does feel like an alien thing when you pick up a chunk of chaga it will it, I mean, it's, it's used for like keeping a live ember as well. Right. So, mm. so scratch what I said before about chucking it out into the <laughs> yard, like, you know, break it up a little bit, dehydrate it and then play around with it. Just, you put a flame to it and you watch it and it will just continue. You can blow that, blow that flame out, but it will just continue to smoke and that ember will just wow. run right through it. Uh, it's pretty cool stuff. I've never done that, but I'm definitely going to now. I'm, I'm pretty excited to try that out. Is yeah, I think, anybody, I think it's been used traditionally for that, for those purposes. I, do you think, like, I could see fire carrying for sure. 
Do you yeah. think there's any culture, do you know of any culture that has used it as an, as an incense in that way? No idea. No idea. I know, I know it was eaten a lot. I mean, in Siberia, the, you, yeah. just, you cook it long enough, you break it down enough, you can sort of eat it. And so yeah. it's, it was used in, uh, in stews, I believe, in you know, different foods, uh, yeah. food preparations by traditional uh, people in Siberia. So That's, That is one of my favorite ways to do chaga is in soups. Um, using the using the water as like a broth base, but also taking some chaga grind and just getting a little grit to your soup. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you want, you definitely want, it, it's like not a bad idea to have a little fat in your system or with your chaga because it's got, I'm sure it's got some stuff in there that, that enjoys a little fat for absorption. It's got all those different, um, oh gosh, what does it have? It's got a, a bunch of the, the healing sugars, right? The polysaccharides. I think it's got some different like hormones as well, some sterols or something. And I believe those, those may tend to be more uh, fat soluble. So, so if you can get it, you know, with, with some food in your stomach while you're drinking the tea or whatever, probably not a bad call. Heck yeah. All right. So from, from one mushroom to the next, how do you feel about starting uh, kind of where we started last week, but picking up on the adventure of finding, identifying, and discovering a brand new mushroom species? Ooh. Yeah, we can do that. I think we'd also talked about the covering the ex different experiences we'd yeah, have as well. For right? sure. You want to start All with experiences? I think probably just because it's more, for me, it's more chronological, I guess. Yeah. In a, in a way. Yeah. That makes um, sense. But we can, you know, we can cover whatever um, it's, I don't know. We were in an, we were in an interesting space last time having <laughs> this contrast between, you know, what the heck is meditation? What are these strange other mind spaces that uh, people yeah. explore? Um we can get into, yeah, we can get into all of that. Um, it's, you know, it's interesting. I'm not sure if you have this sense as well, but something, something always wants me to not talk about this in a way. Like it mm -hmm. seems so um, kind of private. It seems, it seems just silly when people talk about it in a way. And so it's yeah. funny that I'm, I'm doing it, but um, maybe it's just a distraction from all the current events and everything. I feel like we're in the holiday, you know, it's around Christmas right now. We're in the holiday season. And I think sometimes your mind needs a holiday of its own, a vacation from, <laughs> you know, <laughs> from all of paying attention to all of the, the needs, uh, you know, of your life and, and the concerns of the world and all of that. And yeah it seems like to maintain some kind of balance in your life, you have to go into brief periods of, of imbalance or of, you know, some otherworldly kind of, kind of experience, I suppose. Yeah. It's an interesting, I mean, so we are recording this one day after the winter solstice, right? So the second shortest day of the year, um, and there's something energetically to those, those like big transitional moments too, right? Like 
we are we are now on a planet that is starting to tilt back in the other direction and we have to recognize in some way that we are like impacted by the fact that we're on this giant rock that is moving like pushing us closer to the sun taking us further away from the sun um and just how that like how that energetic experience must interact with us and i think you know hmm. <laughs> there are certainly some interesting correlations between the time of the year and our holidays, right? So it, it's like how much of the like experience that we are feeling is holiday related and how much of the experience that we're, we're all feeling is like energy of the planet that we are living on. Um, I think those, those things are really interesting because we have stacked them right on top of each other or they've naturally like evolved from from an idea that is that is one that that stacks on top of each other um and i also will agree that there is something like like <laughs> you mentioned i think trip reports last uh last episode uh-huh. and um uh, there's definitely lots of people who are willing to share their experiences uh on mind altering substances of all sorts but i've i've very rarely talked about my experience as well it seems it seems profane it's funny it's this balance again of this of like it's this balance of the sacred and the profane right yeah and and you know we talked before i think about how like just how like western culture and western values are trying to you know come to terms with with these types of experiences and try to you know compartmentalize them and give them the correct story that aligns with western values and so this is gonna you know i'm gonna have this experience i'm gonna meditate or i'm gonna you know whatever i'm gonna take this plant medicine or something and it's gonna help me be a better person it'll help me fix my issue my uh issues with my childhood or whatever or it'll help me be more productive if i take just a little bit just like all those cool kids in silicon valley (laughs) so um so but but like you say we're on this we're on this you know planet in space and and yet we scarcely realize any of that and we scarcely make contact with like the stars like our ancestors really did they had they had some some knowledge about alignments that that i just don't think you know hardly any of us understand anymore i certainly don't um because they had no they had no netflix to distract them they had no street lights to to um, obscure the sky so yeah so they really had figured some stuff out and so here here we are and there's this this rift between the profane just the everyday and the sacred and we hardly ever make contact with that and yeah it is silly as hell to talk about it so <laughs> we'll do it we'll do it so yeah so the, so the, the 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 school I went to. So I told you a little bit before about like formative years and like what these sort of hints, yeah, um, and that sort of brought me into awareness of these different uh, these different plants, these different you know fungi out there. And it turns out the school that I went to has like turned out more alumni that have discovered um, psilocybin <laughs> mushroom species than any other school <laughs> because, because of its geography, because yeah. of where it is. It's in the Northwest, it's in Washington state. And because it just was such a hippie college and, and there were these, there are these people there that 
that that wanted to you know explore that space and have a better understanding of these organisms and but do it in a scholarly way as well right get published and discover new species and so uh, i didn't really know that at the time but i thought that's you know, pretty a pretty interesting thing and and so i you know i attended that school but then didn't discover a mushroom in the northwest right i had to go right. to the southwest <laughs> to find that thing um but at the time it was in the late 90s and um, you know, mid to late nineties, whatever. And um, Paul Stamets book, psilocybin mushrooms of the world had just come out. And so that was like a mind blowing thing at the time, because here's the first uh, accessible book that had been published in a long time. And it had more color pictures of more species than anything else out there. And so that, that just blew the minds of me and, and all the other kids that were really into this stuff. Um, and just trying to, you know, trying to find them, trying to learn more. And the, the school was also interesting because it was one of the very few schools. That, uh, this is uh, the Evergreen State College. One of the very few schools that also had a copy of um, Gordon Wilson's two-volume book, Mushrooms, Russia, and History, in the rare book room um, of the library. And so to be able, and, and they had a few other rare titles of his as well, and um, some other um, ethnobotany books by Richard Evan Schultes and, and just some great stuff that touched on, on different psychedelics um, and, and their impact on culture historically. So to be surrounded by that was, was amazing. And, but then also, since Paul Stamets lives in the area there, I remember hearing it was right after Halloween. I think it was day of Halloween, actually. Um, someone was down on the organic farm uh, on the campus. The campus is a thousand acre forested campus. And so that's really where I learned to hunt mushrooms and identify um, so many, just hundreds of different species uh, of all different types, poisonous, edible, whatever. Um, but anyways, apparently Paul... Uh, at least used to, um, don't know if he still does this, visit the school, uh, you know, sporadically. And this time, I guess he did it on Halloween with a cardboard box filled with magic mushrooms. <laughs> and it was, filled, it was filled with a new species that he had recently uh, published. And it was, uh, it was like, it's the most, it's called uh, Psilocybe azurescens. And at least at the time, it was the most potent uh, species known and it's terrifyingly potent. Like I just wouldn't want to mess with it. Um, but anyways, he had a cardboard box and he was just throwing them around the, um, the wood chip beds uh, around this organic mm -hmm. farm that's on the campus because they're just going to grow there the next year because of that. And then he gave the rest of the cardboard box uh, to someone that I happen to know. And they just ended up in, uh, in this dorm room that I was in. And we're just looking at this thing curiously, like that's stunning. And then the box, the box went away. Thank God. But, but um, and then there's also there's this uh, statue on the campus. It's this um, traditional Northwest native American carved a uh, wood carved statue of uh, you know, some kind of goddess figure. And lo and behold, at the feet of that statue, he'd left a bunch of mushrooms too. Mm. So, the, so the whole area, the whole culture there is just oozing with this stuff. Um, and, and so th that's sort of like the backdrop, I guess, for everything. Um, and I, I just remember, 
that first experience um, was with a group of people. And I remember, I remember someone saying, I mean, we, we drank a tea. It was like a raspberry zinger. Someone threw like raspberry zinger in there as well. Celestial seasonings ruined that tea flavor. forever. <laughs> oh, I can't drink it anymore. Right. And someone said, someone exclaimed like 10 minutes after drinking the tea, oh my gosh, this is the fastest it's ever come on. And I just remember thinking, don't say that, right? <laughs> I don't want to hear that. So for whatever reason though, as luck would have it, I ended up just laying down on a bed, getting under, getting under a blanket on this bed. And someone had the good fortune to... Um, just hit play on the CD player in the room. And it was a seven CD uh, disc player and it was all Beatles albums. Mm. So this is probably about as good as you can get for mm. uh, a freshman in college who just doesn't know anything and has taken what Terrence McKenna would, would call a heroic dose. Um, and, and sometimes that, sometimes that level of, uh, I guess na- naivete is can be a protective thing almost. I think the youth, the na- naivete and the beginner's mind of youth can help you. But um, I mean, I realized during that experience, like you could you could tell that the psychedelic art of the '60s was trying to communicate something and and failing horribly at it, um, which is which is fine. No fault of them. It's it's an impossible thing in a way to communicate. I mean, everything everything in the room was just breathing with some kind of presence and significance. And um, people talk about the elves. There are the elves, right? And in the DMT space, which I'm too terrified to experiment with that at all, but, but also in the mushroom space. And I didn't know about any of that at the time, but the elves were coming through and the elves were the Beatles, you know, John and Paul and Ringo and George would come through the, um you know that kaleidoscopic you know geometric eyes closed you know visionary space and they would come through and and get into my field of view and they would be singing the songs to me um and the the real thing though that i they take away from that experience um was 100 percent conviction that that the afterlife existed 100% conviction that the soul was durable and that it would not go away. And that that aperture of, of consciousness would never close in a way that was the just like really strongly felt gnosis that was there. And that also that I always wanted to be in that space. It was so strange. It was, it was total safety, total safety, even though it was just such a, I mean, it was so powerful. There was no chance for the ego to fight back. Um, and, but I also do, I do remember feeling like, oh my God, if the music ever stops, it's going to be a catastrophe. If the Beatles ever stop playing it. So thank God it was a seven CD changer and it just kept going. But, um, and then back to, so, so that was a very strange thing. And then, and then to take it back to, to close that loop on the favorite Beatles album, I had like the very strange fortune. So all the albums that I listened to were, were records um, 
for the Beatles. But then this is the first time I'd really heard them on CD. And there's a difference between the songs on the mono version of Revolver and on the CD. And um, the version of Revolver I have, the, the record, does not have the John Lennon song, I'm Only Sleeping. And so I heard that song for the first time, just like peaking at a total peak experience. Uh, and that was the strangest thing. So I rarely listen to that song now. And I try to save it because when I do listen to it, it will just take me back to that space so mm. cleanly. Um, it just, you know, a little bit. Right. And, and it was a bizarre thing. Um, so I don't know. So that was the first real experience I had that, um, it's beyond all the descriptions, right? Like I'd, I'd, I'd mentioned before, I'd read the classic descriptions. I'd read the descriptions from Huxley and from Gordon Wasson and Timothy Leary and, uh, you know, Richard Alpert slash Ron Doss, read all that stuff. And my God, they were right. But also it was so obvious that when they said, well, you can't describe the thing, they were so correct. And and even today, I know that whatever description I could come up with is just so inadequate. Um, it's, it's like that for everything, though. How would you describe being in love, right? It's the same thing uh, in a way, except it's just so, it's so darn alien to everyday experience. Yeah. What? So uh, and the visual component, and then we can circle back to the like, feeling sensation but on the visual component why do you think there is so much kind of carryover of geometric geometry right like the yeah. the very geometric visual component of psychedelic anything's almost anything that resonates as to why that is well here yeah a couple things if this is a really interesting experiment that people can do. You can, um, if I remember being in a, uh, sometime in college, being in a, in a room with just a popcorn kind of textured ceiling, and there's a single light bulb, a uh, single you know, light fixture in the middle of the ceiling. So you have this random texture. But if you're staring up at that light on, maybe if you, could, if you just relax, I, I haven't done that in a long time. But certainly if you have um, some kind of, you know, low dosage of, uh, you know, psilocybin in your system, maybe if you just totally relax on the mat, you can do this too. But you will see a spiral pattern start to form in that texture. And the reason why you're seeing that is because what you're seeing is an artifact of your own body. You're seeing the arrangement of the... Um, cells on your retina on the back of your eye because the most of it's like the uh, the pattern of sunflower seeds in the sunflower it's yeah. that it's a fibonacci spiral kind of arrangement and it, tur it turns out that's like a very efficient packing type of pattern and so if you're staring up at just a, a random textured surface with a central light source and you see all these little shadows formed from from that you, you can see these spirals and you're just seeing an artifact of your own body. And that's an incredible thing, but that really doesn't get it at your question about the geometry. I mean, what, what I think is so interesting about that, about that is that no one, no artists um, 
there's like very little in the in the art record unless you go way back unless, unless you go way back to you know old weavings um even though the, the navajo did not have any kind of connection with these um with you know sacred medicines they still have an incredible you know geometric kind of catalog of patterns that they use for weavings and you can look at the architecture of the aztecs the or the the decorative architecture and how there's a lot of ge geometry there but then you're not going to see that in the renaissance so maybe that old like really old kind of pr almost pre-agricultural art that's very heavily geometric maybe that is trying to describe those visionary states or trying to capture that to some degree but you certainly don't see that in like renaissance paintings for example i mean can you imagine if i mean we we lost that right that was left behind with uh, you know tribal people and left behind when we started growing crops and, and agriculture but can you imagine what renaissance paintings and sculpture would look like had they had access to that? Had they been part of the culture? I don't know if it would be better or worse, but it's, a, it's an incredible thing. It's interesting to, to think about how all that, all, everything you see with your eyes closed, it's, it, is, it is so other. It is so other. It is not like anything you're ever going to see anywhere else, at least in my experience. It just doesn't seem to be anywhere and doesn't seem to be captured anywhere either in human art until you get to into modern art like alex gray where he's specifically trying to to bring something back to share with everyone from that quest um and it is it is alien it's completely alien in a way um the the thing that people will tell you that you can't, I can't even believe it now, but, and you don't believe it. I remember hearing this and not believing it until I'd had the experience was that with, especially with, with suicide and maybe with other things too, there is an intelligence in there that you contact that is not you. And it's not a part of you. It really feels like you are contacting something else that is very alien Sometimes it presents as like almost an insectoid kind of energy. Sometimes it's very elven, but it feels like it is not a part of you and it's trying to communicate with you. And that sounds like something only a crazy person would say. And I can't believe I'm saying this out loud now, right? Mm. Um, but it's there and it's there for anyone who wants to and is brave enough to be open to that. Um, and I don't even know if I'm brave enough to be open to that now in a way. Um, but it's, it, and so that, that's why I think that these comparisons, like pe people are always trying to compare it with meditation and psychedelics. It's like, no, they're two totally different things because there's no Alex Gray of meditation. It's different. It's a totally different thing. And you can't really say one is I don't know, better than the other. That's, that's a silly thing. I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of any of it, really. Mm. Um, it's, it seems to me like a, like a fundamental mystery of existence that 
everyone should at least be aware of and then they can decide for themselves if they'd like to try to grapple with that or not Mm. and you're probably not going to get any answers out of that space but it's there so there's a so i think the an answer at least that you said you felt you felt certainty and safety um and those two things seem like they the more certain you feel about something, I think the more safe you, you feel around something. So those two ideas to me really stack on top of each other. Do you, did the sensation of certainty stay with you? Yeah, for, I mean, for a while, right? It, but it, you know, I talked, I talked before about how those visions, all of that runs through your hands, runs through your fingers like water and you can't hold on to it. And then you'd mentioned how with meditation, the learnings or the feelings or the sensation is persistent. And I guess there is some kind of persistence there if you want there to be, I guess with the, the um, that psychedelic experience, you can, you can go about your day a little lighter for a while, I suppose, and maybe have a different outlook, but it's been so long since I've had a real you know, peak experience like that. It's been so long since I've, um, since I felt like there was even a need to do that, that um, it's hard for me to answer that. I know that the, um, there's been some studies from John Hopkins about, about, you know, these different substances and, looking at people there's different trials you know cancer um there's one with there was one with stage four cancer patients and addressing their anxiety and fear about more, their own mortality there have been other ones i think maybe around depression anxiety whatever and they would follow up with the participants in the trial and also with their friends and family members and ask how they're doing and what they found with these surveys is that you know follow-up six months later maybe even 12 months later i'm not sure how long they kept that study going but uh the people seem to live better lives they at least emotionally they seem to be better connected maybe they seem to be you know adopting a little more responsibility in their lives like if you can really see if you can really feel the impact of some of the more selfish aspects of your behavior you know maybe you're in contact with more empathy uh for yourself and for others and and anyways i guess that you know these studies show that people were better after after these experiences um yeah pretty pretty consistently pretty interesting so there there's some fringe ideas out there right um but there's there's enough of them that they they you can know about them that mushrooms are like a like an alien substance because they they do have a an interesting they're pretty far away from plants like they're cl- we're we're closer to mushrooms um, by a significant margin than we are to to plant structure. Um, does does that maybe, maybe that's a question that is. Uh, 
bigger. But does that does that ring? Is there anything? Because you you did mention right that there's a sensation of a connection, a feeling of something that is very alien. And I know alien is is not used in the term of extraterrestrial, but there, there's a lot of theories about extraterrestrial uh, panspermia or whatever with um, mushrooms coming from from some other different space and, and somehow finding a way to exist here. Does that make any sense to you? No idea. No <laughs> idea. It, 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 it could just be that, that it's, it is 100% purely earthen but we just don't understand what earth is right like we're just living in this kind of like surface virtual reality of of humanness and being a human and like doing all the crazy things that we're doing and i mean huxley talks about how in the doors of perception about how consciousness is a reducing valve the mind is a reducing valve and his evidence for that is his experiences with mescaline um, and and how and and later um, LSD as well. But you, if you're open to everything, you can't grow crops. You can't look out for the tiger hiding in the bush. You can't take care of your baby. You can't teach the children to hunt. You can't make arrowheads because you're nailed to the floor, like in ecstasy, like traveling through some hyperspace of visions and talking with elves and stuff. Like you can't get anything done. And so therefore the mind is a reducing valve. And maybe that's why you need a holiday every once in a while from, uh, from that day to day grind. Uh, But I mean, maybe it is that existence and this planet are just like, so, so strange and so magical that we just it's almost like a cop-out it's a cop-out to say it's alien in a way i'm not saying it's not it's a cop-out because you're saying well nothing quite that magical and incredible could actually just be here and be part of earth it had to come from somewhere else it's like no it's it's everything is so like we just can't comprehend maybe we shouldn't be entitled to like we're you know, like a slug or an ant, you wouldn't, you wouldn't uh, think that they're entitled to understand reality the way that we do. And so what makes us think that the way that we understand reality is all there is to it, right? I mean, there's, there's got to be more. And so we get, there are these tools that you can use to get a glimpse of something else. Maybe that's part of this too. And you can decide if you want to understand or get a glimpse of that or not, or if you just want to focus on, you know, getting the model Y, or, or should you wait for the cy- <laughs> should you wait for the Cybertruck instead? Wait right? for the Cybertruck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe you should, right? So, yeah. See the sacred and the profane. We're going to just go back and forth. Just keep bouncing back and forth. I mean, there's some mushrooms have an interesting history, right? We're like 400 plus ish years, 400 million plus ish years ago. You had the planet was roughly populated by tree sized mushrooms, which what a Alice in Wonderland like experience it would be to walk through a landscape of tree sized mushrooms. Um, <laughs> I, the, the, the psychedelic 
imagery just related to walking through a mushroom forest is uh, hard to actually compute for my brain. Um, but yeah, what <laughs> I think it, I think it is, I think it is a little bit naive or, or misguided to think that something so unique couldn't come from the planet we live on. I mean, the platypus is a pretty good example of a very unique animal, mam mammalian structure uh, that lays eggs and has a pouch and has poisonous, like deathly poisonous, like spikes that come out from its wrist. And like there's, <laughs> the platypus is a, is a, a, a unique enough example of uh, a relatively normal looking animal that is pretty wild if you dig into the details. Well, it's like we're all, I mean, look, to keep, to keep us an advanced society like ours running, you can't have a large percentage of the population being engaged with um, ecstatic experiences like this. Like who, who's going to run the nuclear power plants? Who's going to keep the lights on? Who's going to keep the water running? If yeah. you've got people that are still, you know, let's even just be conservative about it and say, just having, you know, having some ecstatic experience just with the lunar cycle, like once every 28 days, like, I don't, I don't even know if, if society could handle that. Um, and so it is strange how it is strange, this journey that humanity has taken where we, and I'm not saying that we should go back and try to try to recapture that necessarily, but um, we're not the same as we used to be. And what we concern ourselves with today is much different than what we used to concern ourselves with yeah. um, in tribal times. Um, you know, there's this, I, I think that, uh, and we talked about Ramdas before too, and it seems to me like the, counterculture and psychedelics really helped because we are so desensitized from media and everything else in modern life and you can't really see the stars anymore right so you need this sledgehammer almost of these of these types of molecules these types of plant medicines to awaken you to these different mind states and, and i feel almost like the adoption of yoga meditation eastern mysticism all of that would have been greatly slowed down or maybe not really happened at all in the west had we not had this had we not like rediscovered this initiatory experience of these ecstatic um types of mind spaces in a way like i, I just don't know if we had the I just can't imagine like 1950s people reading Taoism necessarily in Western people and getting, getting any kind of foothold into that. Like it seemed like Alan Watts was the perfect kind of character for this because he, he, he was in both camps. He started out very much as a scholar and very concerned with Eastern mysticism and, and Zen Buddhism, but he was in the San Francisco scene, you know, he was in the Bay area and was very sympathetic to, even though he was a proper uh, Englishman and certainly did like his, his alcohol. 
yeah. too much. Um, uh, he was that bridge, it seemed like, in a way, between those two, those two cultures. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's it's a hard to imagine a construct of '50s society that is. It's interesting. Okay, so so let me. So I think if you do, if you take that like that freeze frame of the '50s and you insert some type of a static joyfulness into society and culture, um, it is a hard paradigm. But we probably got a pretty good example of it, like 1967 to 1972 is is kind of what happened. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of know yeah. what happened. What a oh. mess. <laughs> <laughs> but but fascinating too. And it, it created amazing music and art and seemed to be a necessary thing. What is the what is the thing about about that specific window that makes you feel feel like what a mess what is what's the initial response from what a mess come from maybe just jealousy (laughs) um no i don't know uh it was a mess because it came at just the right time and just the wrong time because the you know the boomers wanted to throw off the 1950s conformity Mm -hmm. and you know, at first it was like, well, okay, yeah, Buddy Holly, okay, Elvis, yeah, fine, we can live with this. But then, like, holy crap, like, and then acid started flooding the streets. And, um, I mean, it, you know, mushrooms did not become available till probably mid 70s or, you know, really in any kind of quantity, I think. So it was really, it was really LSD that that was the culture transforming uh, agent of the time. But you're giving a bunch of people this tool with no instructions and no container for it because we had, we had created such a, a stable and sterile culture of the 1950s. And so you give these kids this new, this new um, substance and this new experience that their parents cannot relate to at all and their yeah. parents are afraid of just yeah. afraid of i mean you know they were concerned with like you know defeating the nazis and stuff and then and and, cre- and creating white picket fences and stability and cohesion cultural cohesion and following um authority and making something building something together communally and then here you have the exact opposite of that you have this very kind of individualistic selfish um at times you know introspection and um it went wrong for a lot of people i suppose um but it ha- you know it made some great music too uh but but you know the, there is some but they were they were kids and so they were you know protected to some degree i suppose um by what they were playing with but it seems like there is that that is how that's how the divine had to come through into the modern western culture again i mean what are you going to get going to church and eating the communion wafer and drinking the wine what are you going to get from that but you can and so it's this it's this this 
difference between the West and authority, like in, in the religious context, it's an authority figure who has all the answers. It's the priest and just trust us. We know what we're doing. Just do what we say. Just trust us versus um, the East, which is a lot more about personal insight and experience. Um, and even that shift alone is, is a huge one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I want to, I want to touch on one thing was we talk about societies because I think I heard you say uh, the Navajo had no, had no relationship to psychedelics. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, this is what they say. Right. And mm-hmm. so you have to take that at face value and, res- mm-hmm. and respect that at least and certainly modern day, um, modern day Navajo. I mean, th- but that being said, there were, you know, there were a lot of different tribes in that area um, that, and a lot of people that must have had some kind of contact with the cactuses in the area with, with peyote. Right. So, um, and there's, there's a great book by Houston Smith about peyote and the, na- the Native American church. I think it's called One Nation Under God. Uh, you can get it used for pretty cheap. It's incredible. It's an incredible book about what that plant and what that ceremony and what that container means to, to people that are really living on the margins of society generally, um, that, are, that are living a, a lot of the times on, on reservation land and living in a life of of poverty compared to the way that many Americans live today. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. That's what they, yeah. They claim no, no contact or that's not part of their tradition, the Navajo and the Hopi as well. So if we, so it's interesting if we look at the division between societies and we keep rolling back until there's, there's more or less a separation point, right? And I would assume that if we rolled back to a certain point in time, there would be a relative separation in societies, not just thinking about uh, here in North America, but South America, and, and just kind of everywhere, essentially, right? If we roll back far enough, there's a separation of society. And each one of those little societal bubbles would almost certainly have an attachment to some type of psychedelic substance that their that their people used for for whatever whatever reason that was it would be really interesting to take a look at how those different psychotropic substances formed and shaped variants or or at least were a part of forming and shaping variants between between separated societies and then see how those substances and the like chemicals within the substances overlap or don't overlap between, between societies at similar points in time. So every culture has had an inebriant, every single culture, except for, um, oh, I'm blanking. And the people that, uh, why can I not think of it? The people that live, you know, live and make igloos and things like that. Why am I blanking? <laughs> <laughs> well, up to the I, North Pole, right? Yeah, I, I think, people, I think we're, we're going up in the Arctic level. 
because they can't ferment anything, right? Mm. But anyways. That's it. So that is fascinating, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Eskimos. Yeah, Eskimos. Eskimos. First nation, first nation. There's all. Right. It's hard to keep up with the amount of people. Okay. Yeah. So anyone, if you're living somewhere that it's so darn cold, you can't ferment anything. And those people are the only people on the planet that did not have some kind of inebriant. Right. Mm. Um, but mm. I mean, it, it seems to me like the Aztec or the Mayan or whoever, I mean, they, they did some stunning things. So their architecture with all of those temples, with their alignment of everything to the stars um, and how, when the conquistadors, when they came in and just conquered, I mean, you had a few hundred people conquer like a hundred thousand people essentially. Um, but we have from the priests and from the, the literate uh, conquistadors, they had these um, books where they would document um, what they were seeing and what they were learning from the culture there. These uh, codexes, I, I believe they were called. And they do document in there um, the use of, of psychedelic mushrooms and, uh, and also feasts, there would be these ritual feasts and they would like eat these mushrooms as well and you know, go mad, right? And this just like horrified, absolutely horrified these Catholic priests that mm. witnessed this, mm. you know? Um, but what is so incredible is just how advanced they were um, with everything that they had built. Uh, and there was, it, it, I can't remember, where i'd heard about this but there was uh there was someone who really you know was a student of of all of the architecture down there all of these different temples and pyramids and they looked at what was known for the location of all of these and how that that was informed by the stars because they used the stars and the celestial bodies to inform the placement of everything and they were like huh you know, looking at Google Maps here, there should be another temple right here. It's in the jungle. There's nothing there. And so then the team went out and lo and behold, there's a temple there. I mean, <laughs> it's just stunning. And so some people, some cultures really had integrated uh, these types of experiences and these molecules into their culture in a way that was so complete that even though these people were absolute savages and had human sacrifice and everything, Oh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe this is not a very good advertisement or sales pitch for psilocybin in society. <laughs> but, I mean, they had, you know, they would use it ritually, ritually, but then they would also have human sacrifice. But then they also had amazing art and amazing technology. So go yeah. figure. Go figure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know what to think of that, but it's an, it's an incredible thing. And there are a lot of cultures that seem to be unaware of what they had around them. So. Mm-hmm you look at the, the Native American tribes in the Pacific Northwest, for example, I mean, that place is just teeming with mushrooms. They apparently have no knowledge of them. That's fascinating. And mm-hmm. a lot of that, I believe, is speculated for cultures in Europe as well, in Western Europe. You have a lot of uh, mushrooms growing there, associating with um, people uh, keeping animals in, on pasture and things like that. And just no, no knowledge, no experience of it, apparently. Hmm. So, so who the heck knows um, what, what draws some cultures towards that and other cultures 
just tend to ignore those realms, I guess, or maybe seek out a different, a different doorway in. Yeah, that's, that is a, yeah, that, that I think it's, I mean, it takes an awful lot of research, but someone's got to do that work. Somebody out there do the work of, of really separating and identifying cultures based upon substance used. And let's see, <laughs> let's see what those similarities and differences are. I'm sure someone's done it. I mean, but what it all, I mean, I suppose it all just comes back to our need to want to understand things. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we do have an in- inherent want for certainty and sa- certainty and safety, I think. And contact with something, right? Contact with, with the, the divine, right? And yeah. whatever the heck that even means. Um, and it seems like today we've, you know, we've lost a lot of that. Um, we'll see if that's for better or worse. There's this, I, I've been waiting to find a place to put this, this uh, line and this story from Zhuangzi in here. I think that's how you pronounce his name or Zhuangzi. But I can't find a good place. So I'm just going to put it in here. I like it. This is, this is great. This really gets back though to like the youthful experimentation or maybe just contact with um, something greater than ourselves. But okay, here, this is just, so, it's so much fun. Okay. All right, here it is. A drunken man who falls out of a cart, though he may suffer, does not die. His bones are the same as other people's, but he meets his accident in a different way. His spirit is in a condition of security. He is not conscious of riding in the cart. Neither is he conscious of falling out of it. Ideas of life, death, fear, and the like cannot penetrate his breast. And so he does not suffer from contact with objective existence. If such security is to be got from wine, how much more is to be got from God or the Tao or whatever you want to call it? Yeah. certainly more and so isn't that what we're all looking for and damn it i'm not going to get it from the cyber truck you know (laughs) that's probably fair that's probably fair does that mean that the cyber truck is letting us down no, it's just it's just part of the human can it's part of the human condition and part of like what you know what the people who really understand marketing and psychology figured out as a way to kind of keep us you know on the treadmill, right? Yeah. That you think and I you know I go through this with my kids too. It's like, oh and even myself, it's like, well, I I want this thing. Well, it's like just think about it for a minute. Is it really gonna is that going to do something? Is that going to fix it? Is that going to fill the void? Yeah. I think that's, that's very fair. The answer, the answer 100% of the time is no. It just, yeah. just is a determinant of how long it takes you to remember that. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> that's right. I guess unless you're maybe like you're a Ram Das type. I don't know who wants to be that like in some ways it's funny that people aspire. Some people aspire to want to escape from the game. It's like, mm-hmm. well, 
shoot, you, you're, you get to play the game. Like when you're done with the game, maybe you, you know, close your eyes and then you get to go back to pure ecstasy, um, which was, you know, my first real profound experience. That was the, that was the message. And I don't even, I don't really even believe it today, but that, that was the thing that was felt so completely, completely known, right? Complete certainty. But yeah, but I, it's like, well, it's okay. Maybe you should be fine with playing the game where you have a feeling of incompleteness. That's okay. Yeah. Because then you get because then your job is to help other people alleviate alleviate suffering, right? Because the work is never complete. And so then you get to work on your own suffering and other people's suffering and try to make things better. And that's a fine game to play. Yeah. Do you think that is the game most people are playing? No. No, it's it probably just depends on your temperament. Right? Yeah. Charlie Manson wasn't playing that game. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. That's probably true. He's playing something. Yeah. Totally selfish game. Right. Um, yeah. But it seems like that's the game to play. It's definitely a game that makes the human experience more enjoyable for everyone. Be better. Be better if everyone was playing that game. Yeah, because then you really get to realize like, well, okay, it's hard to make things better. It's hard to make an improvement. But then over time, as you keep working on it, you get to see some progress. Mm. Um, and then, you know, maybe you have a little humility about other people's efforts and when they're trying to improve things. And, you know, it's so easy to just critique whatever, yeah. the, the government, <laughs> all of that, which I'm not saying it shouldn't be critiqued, but uh, um, yeah, it's hard to make things better. And it's hard to maintain things that are already good. Mm. You know, just look at your house. Look at your house. Okay, that's a good thing. Make some shelter. Well, nature's trying to slowly take that away from you all the time. Absolutely. So yeah. You have to. You have to maintain that. It takes work. Yeah, it's definitely true. And the same thing is happening to your body, right? Like you are you are constantly being pulled back to the earth, and. Um, you are constantly fighting against that pole. Your, your entire life is about energizing this little lump of, of earth that we've mobilized. And the yeah. entire experience is the earth trying to pull it right back. Soon as soon as your right. energy is no longer able to overcome the earth's desire, you will return. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it was Alan Watts talking about, you know, watching watching films of lions or tigers overtaking an antelope and how if viewed from a certain way the antelope is freely giving itself to the predator and so we're always playing this game of like life and death and good versus evil and 
maybe when you come to that end, maybe you come to some sort of peace and you realize, well, it's okay. I'll just take a well-deserved rest now. I've done my work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there, there is something there is something to the end of old age generally that has that same energy, right? It's like, you know, you could, you, you communicate with, with elderly people and they, they all seem to have a, a very similar experience, which is it's coming and it's kind of welcome. It's kind of kind of looking forward to that opportunity for the rest. Mm-hmm. Now, now Huxley, I think maybe I've mentioned this before, but Aldous Huxley, he he did work up until the very end. So he's on his deathbed, and he writes a note to his wife Laura, and the note is basically shorthand for you know, give me so many micrograms of LSD intramuscularly because he had read so much about the Bardo realms and the Tibetan book of the dead that he wanted. I mean, you get to, you get to like, you get so many days on this planet and you get to try different things. You only get one shot at death in a way, or, you know, at least in this incarnation, you get one shot at it. It's a rare thing. And so he went all the way with his life and decided, well, I'm going to try to cleanly get through the Bardo realm by tripping on acid <laughs> as I die, right? By, yeah. by and that, that's, a, that's a profane way to say it, right? By, but that's what he had his wife do. This was in 19, he died on the same day that JFK was assassinated. Mm-hmm. This was like before that, and that was the end. That day was a symbolic end of one generational cycle and moving into the next cycle it was the end of the 1950s that day when jfk was shot and so huxley's getaway car you know he he tried to escape basically and get through that bardo realm that the tibetan book of the dead had described so that he could have a very clean transition um and in some ways, I don't think that's necessary at all. But God, I love that he did that. <laughs> yeah, that is... Scho- uh, like a scholar and a lifelong learner, if there ever was one. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Work on the way out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to be prepared as hell for this thing. Are there are there no further descriptions of of his end time? Did he share Did he share any last words? I I don't know. I mean, pro- there's probably something from Laura Huxley about that. She probably I'm sure there's a book of hers, like a an autobiography or something, where she describes it. But I don't I don't know. I think his last book that he wrote was a book called Island. And it was really his vision of what a utopia would look like. Um, and it had to do with, you know, a different way of educating people, a different relation to plant medicines. That was, it's interesting how he went from a very cynical, brave new world with Soma, 
that was the drug in there, which was a gram is better than a dam. And I think that's very analogous to um, what's happening today, even with cannabis, um, the end of cannabis prohibition and how this is a good way to keep a population calm as their lifestyle is their standard of living slowly erodes because of macroeconomic trends, <laughs> um, yeah. inflation, uh, exporting of jobs overseas, blah, 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 technology taking jobs away. So, but anyways, he went from this very kind of cynical and, and uh, cautionary tale of brave new world and people, uh, a society, a dystopian society where people have no agency, they have no control and they have no meaning and they have no free thought to this book island his final book where it really is about a it's him you know kind of scoping out what a what a utopia would be like in his estimation and so he's a deep thinker it's probably worth i haven't read that book in a long time but it's probably a book that uh people should visit if they're if they're interested in maybe what a better society could look like, um, don't expect your elected representatives to read it anytime soon. Yeah. That I, that I'm sure is true. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We were, are are we failing again, Patrick and and keeping it non-tangential? (laughs) <laughs> I, I think we've done an interesting uh, hour plus here. Should we save the discovery yeah. for another episode? I think so. And we're, boy, yeah. we're building this up. It's probably going to be pretty darn mundane. So yeah, we'll have to do, we'll do a third one. We'll talk about, about that. And then who knows what else? So yeah. yeah. Cool. That'll, that'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. Any, any final encapsulations of today's experience? No, (laughs) I don't know. What about, what are your thoughts? (laughs) I think there's, I think there's something uh, to the exploration of certainty and safety. Um, those two concepts are definitely very impactful, I think, on the human experience. And I think your, your finding of those, those two elements within the, within the mushroom experience are, are something to be thought about for sure. Certainty and safety. And then the yin to that yang would be freedom. Right. It seems like people are, there's always a balance there in society of safety versus freedom. But yeah. Yeah. I'd, uh, mm, there we did it. I did something that I, I didn't think I would ever do. Right. Cause we, yeah. we talked about that at the top of the hour. It's like, well, why even talk about this stuff? It yeah. seems like it's, it's a secret for a reason, mm. but then again, only people who've made it, quite a few steps down the invisible path with us are going to listen into this so it still is a it still is a secret it's still a secret yeah it's a it's a close-knit close-knit group of of visible invisible pathers brad 
I think this, I think this was a fun one. Yeah. And we'll be back in 10 days. Tell me what I interrupt. Let's do it. Now people should let us know where else we should explore on the invisible path. We've gone to some strange places, very different, you know, we've gone all over the place. Where should we go next? What is it that people (laughs) need? What do they need? What do they want? Yeah. Let us know. Help us. Where does this path unfold? And what what is the next direction of the paths unfolding? Yeah. We're going to find out one way or the other. It's going to happen. Yeah. One foot in front of the other. That's what we'll do. All right, Joel. Thanks, Ben. Thank you.